Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Rod, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey, Ross. Hey, Brandon. All good. All good. How about yourself? No complaints. Just another day, another dollar, as they say. <laughs> no, it's a fantastic. It's a sunny day where I am. So we're going to be breaking the ice with the weather, no pun intended. It's a little overcast and rainy here. <laughs> but hopefully we will shine a light on today with this awesome podcast episode. I see you've been creating some noise and some waves on LinkedIn this week. So first of all, congratulations on your new adventure. Maybe we can open up the episode with what that's all about. Yeah, sounds fantastic. Yeah, so this last week, I've announced the launch of the Vector Insecurity Angel Syndicate. So the intent is to make it easy for security professionals to help shape the future of the industry and help support companies in the space that they believe should exist. Essentially, uh, over the past couple of years, what I, ha- what I have come to realize is that while traditional investors are having challenges identifying and making bets on the companies that I believe are going to shape the future of, of the industry, there is a, a large number of security practitioners and people who know how the industry works, who know what problems there are, who are experiencing those problems on the day to day, like those people, uh, although they have like they have a vast amount of, of experience and insight into what actually matters in the industry, they do not currently have the, 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 the ability to inf- influence funding decisions. And so the angel syndicate is essentially a way for a number of security professionals to come together and say, Hey, here are some great startups. Uh, the syndicate makes it easy for us to, you know, to, to access some potential investment opportunities. And we as, as individual practitioners will make our own decisions. We'll, we'll do, you know, we'll, we'll see what the, what the tool does, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have an opportunity to ask uh, founders a couple of questions about, about, you know, their plans and their ambitions. And based on that, we'll make our, our final decision and uh, we'll potentially invest into the startup. So. Uh, the, the intent is to, to make it again as easy as possible, as simple as possible, uh, and also to make it accessible. So in the past, you know, angel investing was only available to people who had, you know, millions and millions of dollars on their bank accounts. These days, if you're an accredited investor, you can like, you can really get started with like, you know, two and a half grand of, of, of sorts. So it's very like, it's, it's, it's accessible and it makes it. Yeah, it makes it fairly seamless and a good experience for people. And uh, yeah, I guess I guess one, one other thing. So for founders, uh, the advantage of being able to uh, to get a, a investment from security practitioners is that it's not just the money, but it's also the expertise and the passion and the desire to help, the desire to you know to participate, provide feedback about products. Uh, provide, you know, like help establish connections in the space and so on. 
Awesome. We can give a few more plugs about how to get involved at the end of the show. We'll keep people in suspense till the end. <laughs> Let's do it. So coming back a little full circle, can you share a little bit about your background and how you got to being a product manager in cybersecurity and then to becoming a founder of this new venture? Yeah. So I have like, I have like, I, I have initially started by co-founding an ed educational technology startup. So what we were looking to do, we were looking to help uh, public, uh, uh, like the public institutions, uh, schools, and, and similar, like essentially public or publicly funded corporations to train their employees around public procurement. So a fairly, fairly niche, fairly technical thing. And after, uh, after moving to, uh, to Canada, I, I got into product management. And so product has been uh, a very broad, a very broad discipline for me to explore. I've worked at, across a number of different industries. I've worked in e-commerce, retail, uh, wholesale, uh, in financial technology for a number of years. And then a friend of mine has reached out, uh, asked me if I'm interested in, in joining a cybersecurity startup. Uh, at the time, I had an opportunity to talk to the founder and, and uh, that is how uh, my, my connection with Lima Charlie happened initially. Uh, Maxime, the founder, is incredibly is an incredibly bright individual. You know, he, he is incredibly mission driven, like uh, with, with some fantastic experience and a great vision. And so, I had the chat with him. I, you know, I, I got really inspired about the problem we, uh, we he would be looking to solve. I went home. I started I started reading a bit more about the industry, and I ultimately said, "No, I'm not doing this." And so that was really my my. Uh, first interaction with cybersecurity. And the reason I, I said no was because, you know, when you're coming from a different industry, uh, starting to read about EDR, XDR, MDR, NDR, SIM, SOAR, AV, and, and on and on and on and on, you know, CSPM and, and just like so, so many other abbreviations, it was so overwhelming. But at the time, I was like, man, I can never make sense of this. This is just too complicated. But obviously, you know, sometime later, I obviously came around and ended up joining Lima Charlie as the head of product, uh, helping build uh, what, what we believe is the next generation of, of cybersecurity tooling. Uh, got, and as I, essentially, as I, as I moved into cybersecurity, what I came to realize is like, there is a need there is a deep need for somebody to break down the complexity, especially from the business side, from the go-to-market side, from the, you know, from the from the investment side of things. There is a lot of great content and there is a lot of great material about the technical side of cybersecurity because there are so many, you know, uh, incredibly talented security practitioners. But on the business side, there is a lot of fluff. There is a lot of you know a lot of buzz. And so for me, uh, I, I almost felt like. Because I'm talking to so many people, because I'm trying to make sense of all of this, the least I can do is to share some of that knowledge and some of those perspectives with people around me. That is how I, how I ended up starting a blog and everything else is kind of uh, emerged and, and evolved out of, out of the blog. Which ultimately led you to your current adventure with this syndicate? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Angel Syndicate, yeah. 
I think it's also a great segue to kind of move through our episode from where you started and how you got into having a very good understanding of like product-led growth as it's become quite the popular kind of go-to-market playbook for a lot of new, I would say, cybersecurity companies coming into the market. But before we get to that, what does product management in cybersecurity look like, seeing as though you've come from other industries? How does it compare and what can you share, good or bad? Yeah, that, that is a fantastic question. And frankly, it's also a, a one that is very hard to answer because like, the fundamentals of, of product management do not change when you go from one industry to another. Like, essentially, like from the foundational level, the role of a product manager is to help solve customer problem and do it in the way that enables the company to capture value, obviously monetize, monetize the usage of the product and ultimately continue to grow, continue solving like harder and harder problems. So like that part really doesn't change whether you are, you know, a, 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 you know, a task management tool like Asana or, you know, a, a cybersecurity middleware provider like Lima Charlie or, you know, in, in, or Google or, or anybody else. However, uh, there are several aspects in which product management in cybersecurity is indeed, like it does have a bit of a different shape. And so one of them is that uh, many of the commonly accepted best practices uh, in this space do not work to the same degree or do not work the exact same way in cybersecurity. And the reason for that is, is actually quite simple. A lot of what we know of product management, a lot of what we think about when we hear the, the words product management comes from the consumer space. It comes from this like the very traditional, very well, you know, very well advertised Silicon Valley playbook of, hey, like look what Facebook did, look what, you know, look what Pinterest did, look what LinkedIn did and so on and so forth. So it comes from this consumer space. And like, let's be honest, like the vast majority of cybersecurity, it is anything but consumer. So uh, like fundamentally, that is probably the, one of the biggest differences between cyber, like between cyber focused uh, product management and just product management at large. Uh, like as you understand, when it comes to buying security, security products, and I'm sure you've experienced all, all of this yourself, uh, it is not enough for you to optimize the sign-up flow. It is not enough for you to, you know, have, have some great marketing around it. It is, not, uh, it is not enough for you to have the ability for people to put in their credit card and start paying simply because that is not how, this, how the buying decisions in cybersecurity uh, are being made. There is, like, no matter how people, like, how people get the initial access to the product, there is still a need for them to go through the, through the buying process. There is still a need for them to, to have this, this conversation. And the reason for that is trust. So trust is such a, such an important, such a fundamental layer to, to the buying decisions in cybersecurity, more so than in many other industries. You know, when, when I worked in the e-commerce space, it was more than enough for us to have, you know, on the, on the billing page, on the uh, checkout page, you know, to have some logo saying, you know, your data is protected, is secure, have some like green checkbox. And that gave people enough confidence and enough, uh, you know, like it gave them the credit of trust and it gave HTTPS. them that. HTTPS. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you know that in cybersecurity, that isn't absolutely the case. Like in security, you have the expert buyer who like 
who truly wants to understand how is the product built, how is it secured, who is looking for ways to sometimes disassemble everything into the components, like look inside, because security is like the security of the product they're buying is fundamental to their own security. And it would be similar to like, th think about it from this perspective. When a company is buying accounting software, they're not checking, like they're not doing an assessment. How is the company building the software? Does their own accounting. Like it doesn't matter. When you're buying a marketing tool, you don't really care about the way the company selling the marketing tooling is doing their own marketing. It's just like there is no relationship between that and their value offering. But in cybersecurity, security buyer very much needs to know how is the company selling the product, securing themselves, because that has direct impact on the product. So there is that. There is obviously the fact that, uh, I guess another factor that really impacts product management in cybersecurity is that uh, cybersecurity products are very hard to evaluate. You see, when you're buying an accounting product, uh, you typically have a good idea of what you want that product to do. And your requirements, they may evolve over time based on how the market evolves, but they're still some fairly predictable in many ways. You know, when you're buying a marketing tool, you know, like you have an expectation as to what do you want that tool to do? Like the, the, the parameters are, are there, you're evaluating the tool against those parameters and based on whether or not it, it addresses each of them or some of them, you're making a buying decision. In cybersecurity, however, uh, you are making the decision based on what you, what you know today, based on something that you don't even know will emerge tomorrow and based on, on some other layers that you cannot even test. Like for example, uh, you know, you're buying an EDR tool. How do you know that this tool is better than the other tool? Well, you can do some testing, you know, you can, you know, you can run certain things and see whether or not the EDR tool detects it. But what you don't know is like something new is going to, to, to appear today. Which of those two tools is going to be better at detecting it? Like you have no idea. Which vendor will respond quicker? You have no idea. So there is a lot of trust and a lot of like leap of faith that goes into the buying decision. Uh, and maybe word of mouth and peer referrals can help as well. Exactly. 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 So there is, there is all of that. Also, what makes, what makes cybersecurity rather, rather unique uh, when it comes to product management is that you have much, you almost, you have limited to known opportunities to ask uh, hard questions of people who are not yet your customers. Uh, think about it. And, and I'm sure marketing, like, like from the marketing standpoint, I think you can relate and I would love to hear like your take on it is that let's just say you want to know what specific tooling a company is using. You want to know what their problems are. You want to know what is hard. If a company is not your customer, they're not going to give you any of that information because it's too sensitive. Like their, tr their goal, like their whole job, the job of the security team is to protect the information about their security setup, not to go out and share it with anybody who is interested. And also, frankly, those are the questions, you know, when you come in and you ask them, Hey, you know, where do you have inefficiencies in your, in your security operations? Like those are the exact same question that the bad actor would be looking to ask. If they're looking to find, you know, to, to, to find, to find a gap in, in, in their security posture. So 
there is no, like, there has to be the initial level of trust in order for that conversation to happen, which means by the time you're even having that conversation, that company is probably already your customer. So it's harder for you to explore the, you know, the, the potential customers and go outside of that circle. Yeah. So to respond, I would say what I would do is maybe try to sponsor a survey in your ideal target market where it's anonymized so they can trust that the survey companies, you know, handle their data responsibly. So you could try to do a survey. You could look into some technographic companies that have ways of determining what tools companies are using. It's not a silver bullet, but you can get a decent amount of intel on like what tools companies are using. I don't know so much about cybersecurity products that might be more challenging, but there are ways to tell. Like, for example, if you want to know what secure email gateways someone's using, you can do like a reverse IP lookup. But if they're using a cloud solution, you wouldn't be able to tell. So yeah, it, yeah. it requires some creativity. <laughs> Let's put it, it that way. There is, there is that, there is that. But also I think, I think another important factor is that when you're looking at it from the product standpoint, for me personally, it's less important to know like what exact tool a customer is using. What is important for me to understand is Jobs how it's done and how, how exactly, it exactly like how is this being used? What works about this? What doesn't? Where are like, where are they still seeing the gaps? And those are the types of things that like knowing it helps you to build a better product, helps you to build a better solution. And, you know, when I was, for example, when I worked in the mortgages space, uh, it was, it was relatively easy to get a mortgage broker into the call and be like, Hey, we are a vendor. We are building solutions for mortgage brokers. Uh, we are not asking you, you know, to try our tool. We are not asking you basically anything. What we are instead asking you is this. Can you talk about your day? Can you talk about like, what are you using to solve different problems? What is hard about it? What, like, what have you found not working the way you would like it to be working? You know, those generic questions about the, the person's day and how they go about solving specific problems, they truly help you come up with a better solution. In cybersecurity, even like, even, well, first of all, there is this, this layer of trust, which needs to, which needs to be in place for the conversation to happen. But secondly, even if there is a layer, layer of trust, people are so overworked and so like they, they have so much on their plate that really very few have enough time to just sit and talk to vendors about their problems. That is, that, that is not exactly how it works. So, so here's another option. I found that at events, people are much more yes. open to chat because they're there for a specific reason to talk with vendors, to learn new products. And, you know, there you can strike up a bit of a conversation to get a little more juice than what you, or even any juice, because like you said, most people don't want to talk until they've built some trust. So when you're face to face with someone, those obstacles are dropped by 90%. And I've had some good conversations, product conversations at events. Yeah, same. I can, like 100%, like exactly what you said. Uh, probably is an exception of the fact that uh, people go to conferences to, to talk to vendors. I don't think that, that, that that's what happens. People go to conferences to, to talk to their peers and to talk to, to, to one another. 
and vendors are just there. And if they're interesting enough and, you know, not salesy and uh, then, then yes, they, they would definitely be open to have a conversation. And to collect yeah. swag. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but I would push back a little bit. Like there, there is a good portion of security practitioners and executives that do actually go to events to learn about new products. But yeah, I, I, I don't fully disagree. The vendors are not the center of attention or the grab, but I, I think they're a big part of it. Yeah, and frankly, to me, that's where that's where this conversation kind of nicely flows into the question about about product wide roles. Because I personally believe that the best way that any so I have this strong conviction that any security practitioner should have the ability to try the product, like to try any security product whenever it's like whenever it suits their time. Like they should be able to do it on their terms. While today, you know. Quite often, yes, people have to go to a conference in order for them to touch the product and to, to see exactly how it works, because yeah. the alternative to that is to attend six or 10 demos before they, they can even do it. So this is where, like when you're, you know, product like growth, like it's a, it's, it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting word. It's like PLG is, is a very cool acronym, but fundamentally the way I think about it, uh, and the way I believe it makes it like it kind of removes all the fluff and all the buzzwords is I think about PLG as being practitioner focused, just looking at practitioners and trying to build a product for them. Maybe this is a good moment to ask you, like, what is your definition of product led growth? Yeah. So, uh, I think of it, I think of it, I think of product led growth as a mindset that makes product that put the turns product into the main vehicle of growth or like one of the vehicles of growth for the, for the company. But fundamentally, it is about getting the product into the hands of practitioners so that they can, they can see how it works, they can use it, and they can, if it solves their problem, they can fall in love with it and they can then bring it into their company. That's like that, that is really the, the, the kind of the, the framework, I, like the, the mental model I have. And so when I talk about practitioners, I mean, like the definition of who, who the practitioner is will depend on the product. Like if you are, you know, if you're a project management tool, then a practitioner in that case could be just a project coordinator or somebody who needs to use it. But if you are a product for security professionals, then a practitioner could be, you know, an incident responder, a SOC analyst, somebody like a security engineer, somebody who is looking to solve their specific problems. and some personas, some types of people uh, are more likely to look for solutions than others. And like the, there are many kind of, there are many pieces, there are many parameters to it, but I think of BLG as like having focus on practitioners and people actually doing the work. Yes. And we were speaking earlier about cybersecurity doesn't have a lot of go-to-market models that they can copy or get inspiration from, but it seems now like product-led growth is the playbook that a lot of cyber companies have tried and tested. And now there are some playbooks or enough people in the industry that people can pick their brains and understand or leverage some of the tactics that, that they used. So like, what are some 
classic examples of great product-led security companies that you admire and why do you think their tool or their system was successful? So uh, that is a fantastic question. And honestly, I think we are yet to find the human in the industry who can actually answer it. And I will most certainly not be that human. So I think, I think the complexity, like when you say product-led growth, we are often, like we often have a certain picture in mind. And that picture is that, you know, a potential customer creates an account in the product. You know, they come in, they see what the product does, they get their data in, they say, wow, this is cool. I want to start using it. They put in their credit card and start massive deployment. The challenge is that that is not how anything in security works. So when I think about product web, see, just like the term product like growth, it almost implies that you can use it as the only channel to grow a cybersecurity company. And uh, unfortunately, as of today, I think we are yet to find an example where that would have worked well. Uh, some, some people use the example of Snake, but Snake, uh, Snake is a developer, uh, Snake is, 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 is a developer-focused tool, where I think- What about PLG, Virus Toto? What about Virus Toto? Could be, uh, could be, but you see, Virus Total is an interesting product. You can. You don't even need to enter in your email. You don't need to give credit card, nothing. You can just push in a, a URL and scan the results. Yes, I believe you can do it uh, in the UI version. But in order for you to get access to the API and to do it at scale, you do need to get access yes. to pricing. Yeah, it's like a trigger to product-led growth because I guess Maybe we need to define again, like product-led growth. Does it mean you must be integrated into the tool versus a splinter of the product-led growth tool, like a very trimmed down version of the product? So it's not product-led growth per se, but it's a foot in the door to getting integrated, building trust, getting a taste. And like 100%. And frankly, like, and that's, that is why I'm kind of like, I'm trying to be careful about the usage of that word because it's a bit like, it can mean almost anything. And so what I do agree with you, like I think in cybersecurity, product-led growth, like whenever we're talking about product-led growth, it, it looks often more like a free trial or a, you know, like a freemium model whereby there is some form of the product. You can, you can try it, you can use it, but then once you are interested in a larger deployment, in a, in a user at a higher scale, you would then, you know, essentially get, get funneled into a more of a traditional sales funnel whereby, you know, you talk to this, to the, like maybe security engineers, security architects or sales engineers, like, uh, help the vendor to understand your specific use case and then go like down the, the sales funnel from there. But your initial, Essentially, your initial exposure to the product and what the company does comes through like a, an ungated, easy experience of, of leveraging something like, like, like virus total. Yes. So if like, if we can agree that that, that having an open version of the product that doesn't necessarily, uh, it doesn't go into like the self-serve directly, but just offers people a way to experience value. Then yes, I, I would totally use like virus total as a great example. Like a security scorecard has some, some open functionality. Like we do at Lima Charlie times, uh, times, uh, dot com, like the, uh, security automation platform. Like they have a free tier, which, and they they as a company are very well loved, loved and respected. 
I've looked at, uh, I know Panther quite recently uh, opened their platform and I believe they created the 30 day uh, free trial. So I think, I think as we go along, more and more companies are going to start opening up their products to security practitioners uh, to try. And the reason for that is really simple. It has nothing to do with like some sort of big mysterious changes. It's simply because selling to CISOs directly is expensive. And if you're a startup, you can't get that, that demo call on the CISOs calendar because they already have 6,500 of those. And so how do you differentiate? And many, like many successful companies will end up differentiating by trying to go not entirely bottom up, but trying to go to security practitioners so that those security practitioners then teach the product internally to their, to their CISOs and to their leadership and then get it adopted that way. Whenever something becomes trendy, it also becomes more difficult. So people started realizing, yes, the CISO's attention is hard to get. So now everybody's trying to go practitioner up, product-led growth, free tools. <laughs> Have you seen the challenge of all these new free tools now coming up? To me, the challenge, it's almost identical to get someone to use your free tool than to pay for your tool and use it. That's, that, that is a good question. I haven't said that. I don't actually think I share the same sentiment with you. So uh, a couple of things. One. The number of, the number of accessible, and I will call it like, like, I will call it accessible because, you know, some, like some product might have a free trial. Some product might have a free tier. Others might have an open source version. Like I can kind of bucket all of them and say they're accessible because that's what makes them accessible. Uh, the number of accessible security tools is still fairly low. It has been slowly growing and it is, I, I would anticipate to a certain degree, it is going up. But it is not yet anything that is changing fast enough for us to be like, whoa, you know, like everybody's trying to do it. Unfortunately, that is not the case. And fundamentally, I think that everybody in the industry benefits from having more openness and more accessibility around tooling. Uh, it benefits in multiple ways. For security practitioners, I mean, why would it, why, like it's 2023 outside. If I want to create a, an account with GitHub, it takes me, you know, one and a half minutes. If I want to create an account with, you know, uh, so, like some of the other, other products, like even, you know, like data lakes and, and like any, any component of the IT infrastructure, it takes me literally minutes. If I want to get access to CrowdStrike, I need to, and, uh, or, or, you know, or, any of the other uh, other big things, you know, like Palo Alto or any of the other big products, I need to go through a series of demos. I need to uh, like, you know, meet certain criteria, like qualify, you know, have a minimum number of endpoints and, and so on and so forth. And by the way, generally, I don't call out any specific vendors. So I, as I said, as I said, one, I, but in, in any case, you know, like without calling out specific vendors, like why, like why does the practitioner have, have to go through it? I don't think that there should be a reason. So everybody, everybody benefits from, from having their, their, their products accessible. So then going back to your question, well, how, how do the companies then differentiate? How do the companies get people's attention? To me, the answer is actually quite simple. Solve the problem and do it well. Like, and this is where having the focus on practitioner really makes things much, 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 much easier. Because if the, you know, practitioners are people who have a specific problem and they need 
to have that problem solved. If they find the tool and it does the job and it does it well, they will use it. Like it's, it's as simple. The challenge, however, is that very few companies are actually capable of offering uh, tools that solve problems. Many companies in the industry are still selling those like magical boxes that you can just, you know, you press the button, it activates shield, the company will take care of you. You don't have to worry of anything. But this is where, where practitioners, where focus on practitioners comes in when they say that, hey, that is not how security works. Like, give us the tools to do our jobs and we, we will do our jobs. The, so for, uh, like, as for me, the answer to question, how do companies succeed in the new market? How do companies differentiate? Solve the problem, do it well. Where, where do you, where do you, uh, where do you find uh, people who can try your product? Security conferences, like uh, events, uh, CTF competitions. Uh, like those are the type of places uh, where, where some security practitioners show up. So the way I would think about it is this. Uh, Starting, I think, I think, it, it, and again, it, it's quite hard to provide like a blanket recommendation because different types of tools are used by different types of, of professionals. So really the, the number one question should be, who is the user of what I'm building? The number two question is, where do I find them? Like, where do I need to go? Where do I need to be? And that's where, you know, that's where I, I think, I think marketing and, and, and uh, marketing functions come in when like, instead of just trying to do like, Put it this way, instead of trying to like hire a, you know, a big SDR team and annoy everybody by, by doing fan calls out of nowhere and pitching your tools, like uh, organize an event that brings people together, help, like help people solve a specific problem, like help them try the tool. Maybe if you are, I don't know, if you're building an, an ADR tool and if it's accessible, Maybe ha like sponsoring something like a CTF competition where people can actually use your tool could be a could be a place to go. Maybe so it's like it becomes like like the question becomes not how do I like get people into the sales funnel. The question becomes more how do I expose what we do to people who can then evaluate us and make their own judgment whether or not we solve their problem. So I want to follow up with through your circle of peers and startups, is PLG becoming, in your opinion, the de facto sort of go-to market approach? Or are you also seeing more established startups starting to pivot from sales-led to product-led? I think like transparently, uh, I don't think that is necessarily the case. And I think a part of the reason has to do with that like PLG as it stands, like it simply, it cannot replace the more traditional uh, go-to-market strategy, primarily because the like products, products, you see what PLG can do, uh, it can essentially make it easier for somebody to, to do a, you know, a proof of value of the product. Like it, what PLG does, it makes it easy for a security practitioner to take the tool, like and deploy it in their own home lab see what it does, see how it works. And at some cases, like if it does solve the problem uh, that they might be experiencing at work is for them to say, hey, you know, team lead or hey, you know, security manager in my company. I've tried this thing in my own home lab. I've tested the crap out of it. It works. It does what it, it, does what it promises to do. And it is something that we need. So how about we start looking at this? And essentially at that point, 
the pro, like the, the quote unquote PLG part of the experience kind of ends. And what starts, it's a fairly traditional enterprise sales, like sales cycle, whereby, you know, somebody looks at this thing, it, it evaluates it and blah, blah, blah. But the initial entry point was through the security practitioner. So that is something that I have seen work. There is a caveat though. You have to equip people. You have to give people the right enablement materials so that they can actually pitch that tool internally because magically on its own, it may or may not happen. So you like, you have to have some, like some mechanism to, you know, provide the right materials, maybe nudge people, maybe, you know, like essentially give them what they need for them to do that, like to, to do, to pitch your solution internally. But then as beyond that initial entry point, the reality is that companies do still need this, like do still need the sales machine whereby, you know, like this, this, you know, security leader is going to go through and, and they will, they will be, you know, taken through all the steps that they need to go through. Like they will be helped with compliance, with all sorts of legal reviews, you know, uh, and so on and so forth. So. I don't think that PLG and cybersecurity is going to replace traditional sales. Maybe in some specific segments around like dev tools, where, you know, like anything to do with developer security, where, you know, developers are already used to buying things on their own. Well, developers don't like to pay for things, but the engineering organization is used to buying things. So like the, the, there's some challenges around PLG adoption in that direction too. They're just different. But in like in, in, in the rest of the market, I think, I think we will see more companies starting to offer things like free trials, free tiers for their products, just to, to essentially get the, you know, product leads, like leads generated by the product into their more traditional sales funnel. But I think that even that is better than having entire, like the entire industry based on black box tooling. So. I think PLG and cybersecurity will have a, a bit of a unique flavor at the end. It won't necessarily replace sales, uh, uh, like the, the kind of this self-led go-to-market, but it will be a, a good complementary uh, com com strategy. Uh, and I, frankly, as of today, like I, I have, like I do often talk to quite a few uh, companies that do attempt to, you know, to, to do PLG of some form. And I'm yet to find a company that was that would be able to say that, hey, you know, 50% of our revenue comes from PLG. Like, we're not there yet. And realistically, as of today, also, it is hard to build a business on that on that approach. But it is increasingly, like, the, the openness and the accessibility are becoming differentiators for many companies. Yeah, and I've kind of heard and seen firsthand that I think the keyword here is cybersecurity is unique and the different playbooks come together differently. You, you wouldn't copy paste the PLG playbook from consumer to cybersecurity. And here the uniqueness, I think, is you, you said it um, complementary. And I think one under estimated or overlooked component of product-led growth is reducing the sales cycle. It's really helping, and I've heard this from a lot of founders as well, that it's really reducing the amount of demos that you need your sales engineers to get on. Like by the time you're kind of, I don't know, 
one week into communication with the customer, they already know how the product works. They're either sold or they're not. And now it's just yeah. about the sales process, crossing the, the exactly. T's and dotting the I's. Exactly. Exactly. No, that, that, that's, that, that's exactly it. So by the time, like by the, like the sales process is still there. It's just the focus of the sales process becomes more centered around closing the sale and making sure that everything works well, as opposed to deciding is like, is this company even going to buy? Like at that point, they've evaluated the, the tool. They, they have a very high degree of certainty that it can, it addresses their problems. Of course, there's still some questions they have, and that's exactly what the sales process is there to, you know, is there to entirely, you know, to bridge and address, but they're not coming in fresh, not even understanding of what they're talking about and what the tool does, which is why, uh, like, think about it from this perspective. It just, it stay, it saves the precious time of the salespeople. Like, instead of having to talk to somebody who is not qualified, not interested, you have a, you know, a pipeline of people who know what you do, who think that you can solve their problems, who have already tried how exactly it works and maybe, you know, did some proof of value, maybe did initial PO, like POC, POV and validated that, yes, it can work well in their environment. So the quality of those leads, the quality of the people, like it's, it, 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 it's, it's a different game compared to somebody who just came in out of nowhere. They've heard your name, you know, they sign up on your email list because you offered I don't know, a free PDF or a free t-shirt. It's just different. I would also say that it's a competitive advantage if you can get to the nuts and bolts of what your product does before your competitor does, if they're going to kill you with like death by PowerPoint, six meetings before you even get to see the product and company B is already onboarded five of the, the practitioners and they're using it. I think it's already a competitive advantage. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So like PLG is not necessarily like it's, and you know, you, you made another interesting point saying that cybersecurity is unique and we cannot simply, you know, just use a template from, from consumer space. And that is true. But I think what we are missing sometimes is that it's not just that cybersecurity is unique. It's that most industries are unique. Like if you want to sell, like, let's just say you're building software for, for the mining industry, like, uh, how are you going to sell it? Well, you're going to be doing it very differently than if you're selling uh, tools for, for insurance. It's just like it has different players. It has different decision, make, decision makers that are involved in the process. It has different, uh, different factors on the market influencing those decisions. Like every single field is unique. And it just so happens that cybersecurity is unique in a different way. So it is, I think, I think, yes, like, like, like all of that is correct and we should not be taking the template. And it is not just because we're talking about cybersecurity, but it's because like the world looks different. Like if you're building, uh, I don't know, some hardware for departments of fisheries, I, I don't know anything about fish, but I would assume that the way you would be selling it would be very different than if you're building software for developers. So it's just like, it's, it's, it is a correct statement and it is just something that people have to embrace that you know, when they hear the word PLG or wherever, you know, wherever new uh, big thing going around the market, uh, it may or may not work. And even if it does work, it's always a spectrum. It's never all or nothing. It's not like, hey, like, let's make our product entirely free, give away everything for free and hope to monetize it versus, oh, we'll have an entirely, you know, black box hidden product. 
there, there are steps in between. You know, you can have like a free trial and it's only 14 days, assuming that that's enough for you to expose your value. And you can have your pricing hidden or open. Like there's so many different variations and companies have to do what works for them. They have to try, they have to test it. They have to validate what works for their specific segment and, and go from there as opposed to just, oh, like, look at this. This company did this thing. I'm going to do the same. Like that's not how it works. No, it makes total sense. And based on your PLG experience for companies starting out or thinking about going product-led growth, what are some of the big questions they should be asking themselves? What culture should they have? What tools, what metrics should they be implementing? Because obviously the metrics are very different from a sales-led approach. So curious to get your insights on oh, that. Brenda. I love your questions. I feel like we could spend an hour talking about each of those, each of those individual ones. <laughs> well, I think we'll do the, the high level version, <laughs> the podcast version. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think fundamentally the question number one, like, uh, which, which I would, I would look to ask themselves is like, what is the problem are we, are we solving and whom are we solving it for? And so the reason it is important because sometimes you will find that you are solving the problem of CISOs is your product. Like you're solving the problem that, you know, the stock analyst doesn't have, like they don't care about X. So when you're thinking about going PLG, like what does PLG mean? If the stock analyst doesn't care about your solution, but CISO does, then you have to sell directly to CISO. There is just no other way. And at other times, you might be solving a problem of an analyst that the CISO doesn't really care as much. Or a CISO obviously cares about the final solution, but not about the specific selling point. In which case, like talk, like find a way to get to get to the analyst. So I think that understanding the problem you're solving and whom are you solving it for, like is really the number one step. Then the other questions become like, where do you find those people and how many of them are there? You know, if you've only got like 1500 people on the market who can buy your tool, like hire a sales team, like say go. And like, just go and approach every one of those 1500 people and sell your product. If you are selling to the market where there is like thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, then well, it, it changes the equation a bit because your like your total addressable market is broader. Like you can, you can potentially experiment with something like, like product like growth, assuming that obviously you are targeting and building value for practitioners. By the way, the can I interrupt you for a second? You triggered a question. Should companies pilot first a sales-led approach to get some traction before even thinking about product-led? Or does that just go without saying, like, you would only consider product-led growth once the founder founding team has an inkling of traction, some KPIs that indicate that there is some product market fit before you even think about product-led growth? So the way, like, it is a fantastic question because I think, I think the, the very important piece uh, to this conversa conversation is that product-led growth is not the same as build it and they will come. And sometimes like people do, like people do inadvertently equate those two. So, you know, some, some great technical founders uh, have a problem that they themselves have experienced. They, they build a solution to that problem. And then they approach the market from the perspective of saying that, well, you know what, I'm just going to build this thing and, you know, I'll, I'll get the website together and people will see what you're doing and be like, oh my God, this is so cool. I'm just like, where do I start paying? Unfortunately, that is not what product, product-led growth is. So 100%, I mean, any startup, 
you know, whether it's cybersecurity or, or any other space, you have to hustle, you have to go for it. You have to, you know, like reach out to people. And it's through that learning process where you, you know, you reached out to, to 50 people, to a hundred people. You've seen like how many of them convert for the ones that didn't. Why did they not? Like, is there no interest? Is it even a real problem we're solving? And if it is a problem, what is the type of customer segment we're solving it for? And it's so tempting to, it's so tempting to generalize and be like, oh, you know, we are solving problems for MSSPs. But what is an MSSP? You know, and a, there, there are so many, so many different types of that. It's always a spectrum, whether it's PLG, it's on a spectrum, like a custom, like a type of a customer. Well, there's some very technical MSSPs that have security engineers, security architects that build their own platforms around their offerings. There's, and there's some that like act more like resellers and just sell, like sell other tools. The needs of those two types of MSSPs are going to be very different. In the same way, if you're selling, if you're saying, well, you're selling to the enterprise, well, great. What kind of enterprise? Like, who is the decision maker? What, maybe what type of the industry? You know, the banking space is going to sometimes have very different needs than the healthcare space. And so for you, as, and, and sometimes they will have, like, they will have the exact same needs. So it's, it's important for people to, to segment, like, to talk to enough customers to do, like, to, to do the, essentially, to go for the hustle. To, to, to go out, to do the outbound outreach and, and slowly as they're building a better understanding, see what else they can experiment with and feel instead of, you know, instead of saying like, Hey, what is PLG and how do we do it for our company? Like my advice always to people is, Hey, think about your business instead. Think about what are you trying to do? Where are your customers? Like forget about PLG. PLG is just like, one out of you know 155 different ways for you to 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 get to get your your word out and it may or may not be right for you so instead of starting with like with the oh we've got plg how do we adapt it to ourselves who are we what are we doing who are we doing it for where are those people let's talk to them let's get in front of them maybe we maybe we have we haven't even built the right product Maybe the product is right, you know, but the market is not ready. There's just like so many things to consider before even getting into like PLG or not PLG that I like, I would always suggest people to think about the fundamentals. Like, hey, we're building a company here. How do we scale it? How do we grow it? There comes a point where, you know, you, you cannot unleash all of your salespeople and every single human. There comes the point when you may realize that, well, you know, it's the technical people who care most about, about your product, in which case, that's where you have to start thinking, okay, like we might be able to, you know, to, to maybe put to, like have a free tier so that we can get those technical people in. But start by really, by, by thinking about the bigger picture and understanding, like, what are you doing? Like, if you are solving a problem for somebody, who are those people? Where are they? What do they care about? And blah, blah, blah. So it's like, to your point, it's not, it's, it's a complex conversation. And that's why it's always, it's always dangerous to provide like any sort of blanket, blanket uh, suggestions. And it's terrible when you sometimes go online and you read those like short articles saying, Hey, here is how you do PLG. And it's like, man, don't do it. Don't do it. 
Yeah, there's a lot of bad advice on the internet for sure. And yeah, just to sort of summarize what you're saying in a couple words, like strategy before tactics always. So let's just, for, for the sake of this podcast, you've done all your research, you've decided product-led growth makes sense for you. It, let's move on to the second and third part of the question, which is what should you consider? Big questions to ask. Then what about culture and metrics and tools, maybe as a way to wrap up the episode? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what should you consider? Uh, in terms of like a couple, I, I think a couple of them actually. In terms of product, in terms of the product itself, uh, what is the one core action that people need to take in order for them to start getting value uh, from the product? And uh, super, super important, you know, especially for security products, there is always this need to either get the sensitive data inside or, con or deploy, the, deploy the product onto their network or do something else. Essentially, something that is high friction. Uh, what is it? And how can you reduce the friction as, as, as much as possible? Maybe, you know, if the product relies on, on having some data, maybe having like a, a, the ability for the customer to enable a demo data. If there is a high like learning curve, maybe having the ability, like maybe providing an example within the product of how something works. Essentially, when you're thinking about the onboarding, think about making it easy and simple, but also keep in mind that there is always just roughly like one core action that has to happen before the product is useful. Like if you're an EDR product, you have to deploy this thing on your endpoints. Before you do it, like it doesn't really matter. Like you're just staring at an empty product. If you're a product for developers, then maybe, you know, you have, you know, you have to get, you know, a, 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 a GitHub repository in. Or like essentially there are, you know, there, there is something, there is that core action. Like think about it and think about producing friction around it. Uh, think about uh, increasing like essentially increasing the level of trust. Uh, in my experience, the easiest way to increase the level of trust is to provide more transparency. When you're an early stage company, the number, like people are not confident about the, the fact that whether or not this product even works. People have too many questions. Like they know they will run into bugs. They know they, they will run into challenges. The more transparency you provide, the better. And transparency itself, it's a concept, you know, uh, it's again a scale. You can like open source in my mind is the highest level of transparency, but it's also very, very hard to like to build a business on. So like maybe not an open source, like having a free tier, having the ability for people to like see what exactly is running in their in their tenant is great. Having transparency around pricing so that they can predict the pricing is great. Uh, so product, the second piece is pricing. Pricing wise. Are you in the place where, uh, where you know, where you can confidently say how much you should charge and what should your pricing model be? If yes, well, then yes, sure, you may consider going, you know, like making your pricing public if that is something you want to do. Knowing that the enterprise customers, if that's who you're selling to, will always negotiate the pricing down. So maybe you should not be doing it. Essentially, like understanding, like what are the trade-offs uh, for each of those? The other reason why you, should, you would not uh, sometimes want to make your pricing public is because when you're at an, at an early stage, you might not even know how to charge and what to charge for. So when somebody reaches out and they don't know what the pricing is, you can essentially experiment and have a different pricing model for different customers. You can see how it all works before you make a decision. 
if you make it all public and it's front and center, this is what we charge and this is half, you might be locking yourself into the model that may not even be working, but it's already there at public. So being smart about that. Product pricing. Uh, I mean, the rest is, is really, I think, I think the, num- the number three piece that I would mention is thinking of, like, if you are interested in, like, you know, you've done your research, PLG is what you want to do, you want to do something, uh, think about it as a scale and a step-by-step approach. Meaning, it, you know, let's just say you've got like an entirely closed product, you know, you have to create an account for the customer, like manually onboarding. Well, what, 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 is, what is the next step? It does not have to be, and it probably shouldn't be just like a free for all, you know, self on board, and now you're in and you do whatever the hell you want. It could be something like, hey, you know, a customer can, you know, create an account, but then you manually approve their account before they get access to the product. Like then you optimize the onboarding flow. And then you, you basically talk to each of those people trying to understand like, hey, where did they run into the challenges while trying to onboard? And as you're doing it, you're improving that flow. And then potentially you might make it so that, you know, anybody can sign up, but they will only get access to a certain part of the product. Essentially, don't think about it as like all or nothing. It's either, you know, an entirely, you know, this secret black box stuck to the sales rep, or it's free for all, you know, use, use wherever, wherever you want, however you want. Like there, there are different shades of, of, of this. And it's very smart to start small and then to slowly open up and while doing it, see how it impacts your sales process, see how it impacts your, you know, your conversion rates, see how it impacts the type of people you're getting, the type of leads you're getting. You know, it may so happen that 95% of the leads become students who are interested in, in the free tool. And that is not bad. Like it's totally okay. As long as you, you can do it slowly so that you can understand what is happening and how it is impacting you. Because what you don't want, you don't want your sales team trying to bang on the doors of, of students who, have, who don't really have any money to pay. So it's the step-by-step, the step-by-step implementation. To me, like those, those, those are probably the, the three most important pieces. In terms of metrics, I mean, I think for every business, and, and you know, there's some foundational metrics, you know, like, like conversion rates, uh, like conversion rates between the free and the paid you know, the, and the paid version. What about like, you know, the, kind of, I don't know how you, if you look at customer acquisition costs. Exactly. Well yeah. two, if you have any insights on that. I mean, like transparently, if we, especially if we are talking in the context of the early stage startups, making sense of any of the metrics at an early stage is so hard. You know, there is so little data, like as much as you would like to like, what is the cost of the customer acquisition? Well. I don't know, you know, you've got a bunch of people like hustling, you know, trying to get somebody to convert. It's, I feel like, like once you've got the pipeline, once, once you are like, you know, once you have the volume of people, then you can start, you can start looking at those measures. It's the same as, you know, like from the marketing standpoint, I'm sure you will understand, like, what is the conversion rate? Like, what is the quality of leads? I don't know if there are 100 people visiting our website, can we do an A-B test? Of course not. Like, so it's just like, there is a lot, you know, a lot of it is, is a lot of it is anecdotal and qualitative. Exactly. Exactly. And so uh, to me, I think what what is important is to have that, like, especially in a small startup, to have that checkpoint internally, 
like to 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 gather gather around you know once you know once a month once every couple of weeks look at the numbers share the observations and see like where are we going what are we doing are we at the right track like are we on the right track are we doing the right things because it's all too easy to always like to always assume that things are going in the right direction because you know tomorrow should always look better than 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 yesterday did but even even if you don't have the right metrics that you can look at, uh, still like try like try to make those scientific observations and and try to challenge them. Like challenge as many of them as possible. Am I just seeing things, or is there something here? Like try experiment, test it. And in terms of metrics, you know, I can totally come up with the laundry, laundry list of metrics. But I think like specifically for the early stage, the part that matters is the is the trend and it's the it's the direction. Is it going up or down? Is it going up or down? Like, and you know, is it, you know, 0.5% or 3% honestly at that stage? It matters so little. Yeah, you're right. We could definitely talk for hours and go off into tangents. Even just talking about analytics, we could pivot for an hour. (laughs) Oh yeah, analytics. But yeah, I I know you're busy and I want to be respectful of your time. So again, thank you so much for all the insights and education and i'm sure that our listeners got a lot from this episode rounding out and and wrapping up your new venture who it's for and how they can reach you if they want to learn more yeah uh, yeah thank you so much so uh venture and security angel syndicate and angel syndicate helping security professionals to invest in in cybersecurity early stage startups uh this angels.com is the website you can also check out my blog, VentureInsecurity.net, or find me on LinkedIn, Connect. Like I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. You know, you see my name on the screen. The last name, it's super hard to pronounce. Just connect connect on LinkedIn. Uh, super happy to, you know, to, to have a conversation and see if there is something cool we can do together. Thank you so much, Brandon. Yeah, no, you're welcome, Ross. I'm sure lots of people would love to pick your brain on many topics, whether it's product or investing, founder-specific conversations. So... Thanks for sharing all your details and yeah. thanks for thank you on to and, the show. and thank you yeah and thank you Brandon for the amazing for the amazing job you do with the founder pack and with all with, with the community you're building it's it's incredible to see so many engaged people I thought if the if the listeners are not yet a part of your community I think they should reach out to you and they should definitely join thank you for the kind words and yeah Slack is my new best friend. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Well, thanks everyone for tuning into the Founder Pack podcast. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Founder Pack podcast with Brendan Rod, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.